0: Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church sermon podcast. We are a counter-formational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. As Harvey mentioned, today is Family Sunday, and uh, that means the kids are in the mix today. So we're going to do something just a little bit different for scripture reading. So uh, any kids that want to be a part of this are welcome. So any any kids, go ahead and come on up front. Normally we hang out in the front. We're going to hang out right here. So all the kids that want to be a part of this, you guys can self-select when you age out of this. But if you want to be a part of this, go, Selah, no? Okay. Um, come on down. Uh, sit up. Don't punch me, kid. <laughs> Whose kid is that? Uh, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are wrapping up our series in the book of Jonah, okay? And so we've been in Jonah for, uh, this is week five in Jonah. And uh, we actually finished the story itself last week and we're kind of doing the zoom out themes in the book. And uh, so for, <laughs> you're out of control. Um, it's my child, I apologize for him. Um <laughs> Uh, so, uh, f- instead of scripture reading, I, wanna, I want you guys to be caught up on the story. For those of you who don't know the story of Jonah, we're going to act it out, okay? Real quick, fast motion Jonah. So, I need some characters, all right? First, I need God. Who wants to be God? You, okay, that was a test. You can't be God because you said it first. No, you can be God. Uh, this is not theologically accurate, but it's okay. It's all, it's fine, right? Uh, okay. And you want to be Jonah, okay, you can be Jonah. You come on up here. Uh, Who wants to be the fish? Richard, you're the fish, okay? Excellent. And now, you four are going to be the sailors and Nineveh, okay? And then I need one of you to be the plant. I'm going to nominate Wesley to be the plant, okay? You're going to be a plant later on, okay? So hold up. All right, so you're the fish, right? Okay, so you're down still. All right, so the story starts with God... Telling Jonah, here, all right, so you come over here. Man, this is really too natural for you, Penny. Uh, Another one of mine. Um, They're all mine, actually. Hey, plant, get out of here. All right, you got to wait your turn. Okay, so God told Jonah, uh, go to Nineveh and preach to them. Is that what that looked like? Okay, all right. (laughs) Nope, okay, so no, uh, because Jonah's like, no, I'm not doing that. There you go, (laughs) I like that. And he went the other way, so go the other way. All right, God, now you're off stage here for a minute. Now come back, uh, Jonah. Jonah got on a boat. Jonah had a weird walk. You've really captured it. Uh, Jonah got on a boat with a bunch of sailors. So I need my sailors. Come on, sailors. Everybody, all my sailors, come on up, Wesley. Now, I need you guys to sit on the ground and pretend like you're rowing the boat, okay? And there was a big storm that came, And the sailors were like, oh, no, we're going to die. Is that what you guys think rowing is? What is this movement? Okay. Uh, And they all went, oh, no, what's going to happen? We're all going to die. And Jonah said, "Eh, that's probably my fault, right? Uh, You're going to have to throw me in. And they're like, no, no, we'll row. And so keep rowing, guys. Row harder and harder and harder and lay down and row. And Jonah's like, nah, you're going to have to throw me in. And so they finally gave up. Okay, so Cole, I'm going to have you throw Ethan into the water. No, no, no. Let's not pretend to do that. You can pretend, okay? And so uh, the sailors threw Jonah in the water. Nice, that was good. Okay, and he ends up in the water. And this is where the big fish comes in. All right, so sailors off stage, Jonah on big fish. I want you to just pretend to eat Jonah. Jonah, come on back up here. He'll come. Jonah. Jonah, Ethan, your name is Jonah now. Come back up on stage. Stay in character. Okay, and so then the big fish just, just you know, pretend to, I don't know. There you go. Good. You got him. Okay. And the big fish, uh, plant? The big fish gets Jonah. Jonah cries out to God and says, help me, God. Okay, and then the big fish, you get to pretend to puke him out up onto the ground okay good now that was excellent okay now the fish swims away and uh still needs to eat but all right so now jonah all right ninevites come back you guys are my ninevites as well sailors and ninevites come on come on wesley all right so now jonah goes to nineveh he preaches says repent repent okay and you all say all right cool and you repent and you get down on your knees to pray and say forgive us god Come on, plant. All right. And it works. And everyone's happy, right? No, Jonah, you're not paying attention at all. Jonah's mad. There you go. Good. Okay, so Ninevites off the stage. All right, plant time. Hey, Wesley, come be my plant. So Jonah sits down outside the city and he's mad because he didn't want God to save him, but he did. And so, Jonah's sitting out in the sun, and God sends a plant to shade him, and he's very happy because of the shade, but then God withers the plant away, and Jonah's mad again, and God, come on back God, you can stand by your plants, God goes, Jonah, Jonah, are, is it a good idea for you to be angry? I saved Nineveh, isn't that a good thing? And that's the end of the story. Ends on a question. All right. So everybody clap for your actors. Go back to your seats. Wesley, you want to hang with me or you want to go back? Go back. Okay. You go ahead. All right. So that's the story. You guys pretty much get that. That seemed right. That's the story of Jonah. It's a crazy story. It's entered into our kind of cultural awareness. Everyone's kind of familiar with the story. The crazy thing about the story of Jonah is that it ends with the prophet being the bad guy, right? Like that's almost never the case. The good guys in the story are the sailors who repented or, you know, obeyed God, did the hard thing. It's Nineveh who actually repented of their sin and responded to the gospel And ultimately, as is always the case, the good guy in the story is God, who shows his grace over and over and over. And really the bad guy, the one that looks the worst, is the prophet. And the whole thing ends with him having a pity party that God saved Nineveh because Nineveh was Israel's enemy. So what I want to do today is kind of zoom out a little bit because there's some themes in this book that kind of tell the same story over and over cyclically, right? So the same thing kind of happens to Jonah, that happens to the sailors, that happens to the Ninevites, and it kind of shows us some some themes that are uh, really the big themes of the Bible. So probably if you've grown up in church at all, if you've got exposure to Christianity, really none of what I say is going to be a big, like, mind-blowing idea. These are the basic things of the faith But we're seeing them in a kind of fresh way, and I would argue that the most important things that we need to know to be Christian, especially in the world today, are those basic things. And we have to come back to them and revisit them over and over and over in order to continue to be disciples of Jesus in this crazy world. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. So the first theme, And, and here's the thing. It's Family Sunday, so just expect kids to be yelling and crying and pooping and, and all the things that kids do, and I'm just going to fight through unless it starts to, you know, the poop starts to land on me or something. That, that's it. That's my line. Otherwise, we're just going to fight through it, okay? So step one, the first theme in this book of Jonah, which is a theme of life, is need, right? Need, pain, suffering. The sailors experienced it when God, in, in uh, chapter one, hurled the Lord, hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up, and the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, right? So the sailors endured this great suffering, this great need in their lives. Jonah, obviously uh, part of that storm, but then also getting thrown into the sea, swallowed by a fish, experienced that need. Nineveh as well. you know God tells Jonah go to Nineveh and preach against them for the you know for their evil has come up against me and they will experience destruction right there's existential need there the potential for destruction if they don't uh, respond to the gospel right and and this this idea of need being the starting point of faith i think is absolutely unavoidable a lot of times, uh, non-Christians, people who struggle with faith, will say, gosh, it, what about evil? Isn't evil a real problem for a good and powerful God, right? The argue, so the argument goes, there is evil in the world, therefore God is either not good or he is not powerful. Because if he was good, he would stop it, so maybe he's not powerful and he can't, right? So one of those things has to be the case. And I would actually argue, and will here in a moment, That need is essential. Pain, suffering of some kind is an essential part of the process of faith. And now I want to define need very broadly here because sometimes that need is physical suffering. Sometimes it's relational pain, right? It's a it's a marriage that's broken down. It's a friendship. It's a uh, you know a parent relationship or something, some relational pain. And sometimes, and I, I think this is something we're seeing more and more in our world. It's some sort of existential crisis. It's a question that you can't answer. It's a challenge that has been posed to you by the world around us that you can't answer. So when I talk about need, I'm not just talking about poverty. I'm not just talking about physical pain. I'm talking about relational pain and existential problems. So why does faith have to start with need? A couple things. Need does a few things. One, need implies a norm need implies a norm c.s lewis very famously in in mere christianity says my argument against god was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust but how had i got this idea of just and unjust a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust, right? So all kinds of need, physical pain, relational pain, uh, existential crisis, all need implies that there is some norm. So if you have physical pain, the implication there is that the norm is a fully functioning body, a rightly functioning body that doesn't feel pain. And so when we feel pain, we go, ah, that's something's broken, something's Hurt because we know that the norm, the good, the true line is a, fun- a functioning body without pain. When we experience relational brokenness, we only recognize it as such because we know that there is an ideal of relational harmony same thing with with existential questions. We, we have this crisis of faith because we don't know the answer to a question which implies that we ought to know or that the world is knowable. And so this is a this is something kind of uh, that, that's breaking up the norm in our lives. And so when we experience need of any kind, there is implicit in that the assumption that there is something true and that there is something good. There is a plumb line that we are measuring against, which, which has all kinds of implications for the way that we see the world. So that's one. Two, need reveals our limits. Need reveals our limits. Need reminds us that we are human. And human isn't bad, but human is not God. And that's a reminder that need brings us all the time, that we aren't God, that we are actually human. need creates a situation we can't fix, a problem we can't solve, or a question we can't answer. And we experience the limits of our humanness. That we don't have sovereign control over everything because we couldn't solve this problem. We couldn't fix this brokenness. We can't answer this question. It's an acknowledgment of the limits that God has placed on us. And so it forces us outside of ourselves. We go, I can't solve this problem in and of myself. I can't fix this thing. I can't prevent this evil. I can't answer this question, so I have to go outside of myself. So, need implies a norm. Need reveals our limits. Number three, need exposes our weaknesses, right? We lean on other things before we lean on God. All the time. So in order to be safe, to be secure, to have identity, to have purpose, whatever it is, all of the needs that humans have, we always rely on other things before we rely on God. And the Bible calls those things idols. Right, So whether it's money or it's relationships, it's a job, it's whatever, we rely, we ask other things to tell us who we are, to make sure we're safe, to make sure we have a future. We go, okay, I, I've got money, so I'm okay. And we know we would never think that, we would never consciously go, okay, I've got money, I'm okay, until we don't have money. And we realize we're not okay. And we go, oh. I'm anxious now. I'm fearful now. I wasn't when I had money, but I am now. That's a clue to us that we were looking to those things for the safety and security we now lack. Relationships can do the same thing. We don't, we, most of us wouldn't go, yeah, I find my identity in my relationships, right? Like my wife tells me who I am. We wouldn't say that until there is a brokenness in our relationships. And we go, oh. I don't know who I am without that person. I feel lost without that person. I don't know my future without that person. And it starts to, we start to realize that we have been leaning on other things and other people. And the, the need created by a loss of that relationship actually opens our eyes to something that has always been there. That's why Jesus in the Gospels talks about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Says it's harder than a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Why? Because rich people are inherently evil? Yes. No, because it's the temptation is to lean on money to give us the safety and security and identity we long for. And it's a very powerful drug. And so Jesus goes, hey, this is This is just reality. People who have a lot of money don't feel a lot of need. If you don't feel a lot of need, you don't look outside yourself you feel pretty sovereign. You feel pretty independent because you have that money. The reality is you're not. It's a fragile thing that can be gone in a moment, but you don't feel that until it's gone. So need opens our eyes to the weakness of the things we've leaned upon. So need uh, implies a norm. Need reveals our limits. Need exposes weakness. Need is accountability. Much of the pain we experience in our life is self-inflicted. Not all of it, but a lot of it. It's self-inflicted. It's a product of our own sin. It's a product of our own decisions. And sometimes it's in these times of suffering and in these times of need that we are able to see our own destructive power. Right, you just think about all the mistakes you've made in your life that you haven't really borne the consequences of. Right, we talk about, well, I got away with that one, right? Think about how many things you've gotten away with that if you hadn't gotten away with it, your whole life would be on a totally different trajectory. Right? Maybe, maybe it was something, you know, uh, a criminal that you did and got away with as a kid. I remember as a young kid, we lived on this cul-de-sac that overlooked a highway, and we used to throw rocks onto the highway, right? As like 10, 11-year-old kid, we couldn't see the cars because there was a hedge. We would just throw rocks over. How do, we could have killed people. We might have killed people, and I would never know, Right? I'm going to go to heaven, God's going to be like, hey, you got some accounting to do here. That's so stupid. And we got away with it. And that's a dumb example, but there are all kinds of things that we have done in our lives, decisions we've made, things we've said that we didn't bear the full consequences of. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. Sometimes the decisions we make have a lot of ramifications, and that's a way, that need, that pain, that struggle, that suffering that is the experience of it is a way for us to have our eyes open to the realities of the destructive power of our decisions. Sometimes need, sometimes pain is just God's way of going, all right, go for it, see what happens. Like not protecting us from the consequences of our actions. uh, Actually just allowing the effect to be the result of the cause. To allow us to experience the fullness of our decisions. Sometimes that's the pain. That we experience relational brokenness because God went, you're really selfish. And this might be the only way you ever recognize that. Is if somebody leaves relationship with you because of your selfishness. Now, we're, we're Bible people here. We uh, preach through books of the Bible. We care about the Bible a lot. It's the center of, of our, uh, you know, what we understand to be truth. Um, but right after that is the writings of C.S. Lewis. And, um, and so what I want to do throughout this sermon, actually, is there's one section in his book called The Problem of Pain... Um, And and that one section is kind of our secondary text for the day. And so I'm going to kind of come in and out of Jonah and the problem of pain. So I've got this from Lewis in the problem. If you've never read the problem of pain, just could not recommend it uh, more highly. He says this. He says, now God, who has made us, knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interest but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? It is just here where God's providence seems at first to be most cruel that the divine humility, the stooping down of the highest, most deserves praise. He says, let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for the moment, that God may really be right when he thinks that the modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed. Earlier he had talked about, you know, kind of regular people and the pain regular people feel and how we can look at that pain and go, gosh, that's unjust. And so here he's arguing, listen, that God might be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed. That all this must fall from them in the end, and that if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. And therefore he troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their families that stands between them and the recognition of their need, he makes that life less sweet to them. Here's what Lewis is saying. That we will look to anything else besides God to give us what we need, to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us safety, to give us security, to give us identity, to give us all the things that we need, that we will look to almost anything before we look to God, and all of those things will fail us eventually. They will. They're just not built to be those things for you. So money is good. Relationships are good. Wife, husband, good. All of these things are good. Jobs are good. But they're not God. Right? like They're not strong enough, they're not powerful enough, they're not consistent enough, they're not trustworthy enough to be the things that we look to for our identity, for our safety, for our security. They'll ultimately fail us. Every single one of us over the age of 12 could tell a story about a person that's failed us, how money has run out, how jobs have been scarce, we can all tell that story. But when we're in it, we don't feel it. We go, oh, this job's going to last forever. This money's never going to go away. This person will never fail me. But they do, and they will, and it's only God who will not. Okay, and so we can be blinded to the weakness of the things that we are leaning on. And every once in a while, God will go, hey, I want to open your eyes to see these things for what they are. I want you to see your limits, that you are not sovereign over your own life. You are not in control. Did you hear that one? You are not in control. It's one of the biggest temptations that I can feel and and, and succumb to when things are going good. I feel like the master puppeteer who's pretty much mastered life and the world. And I've got it all going in the right direction. And every once in a while, God has to come in and remind me that I control nothing. Nothing. That he's in control. And as long as I am blinded by my own selfishness and arrogance to think that I am in control, I will rely on me and not on him. So every once in a while, he goes, hey, you're not in control. Every once in a while, he goes, hey, that money can go away. Every once in a while, he goes, lose your job. That was never going to be there forever. To remind us. And so as much as pain is painful, there write that one down. As much as need is terrible, it is oftentimes the only way that God can actually get our attention, open our eyes to see things the way they actually are. So when we have experienced that pain, then what do we do? What do we do? What's the the right response? And this is step two. Confession. So there's need and there is confession. The sailors in chapter one, after they uh, were convinced by Jonah, they got to throw him in. They said to God, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. They confessed God's sovereignty. Jonah, inside the belly of the whales, confessed salvation belongs to the Lord. Nineveh, in chapter 3, it says, all the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah, inside the big fish, said, you cast me into the deep, and you brought me up. And he finishes his whole poem by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Confession. In a biblical sense, what we see in this story and throughout the Bible, confession is simply acknowledging your humanness and God's godness. At the end of the day, that's what confession is. It's to say, I'm a human, not God. You're God, not a human. It is the right ordering of relationship. That's the confession at its core. If you've been a parent, you know that one of the things you have to say the most is, You're not the boss. I have one child in particular, one of my five, that I say that to the most over and over and over. You are not the boss. I don't know where she's sitting, right there. (laughs) You are not the boss. This is the the over and over and over and over message of God to us. You are not the boss. You are not in charge. Repentance, therefore, is not thinking of ourselves less per se. It is just thinking of ourselves rightly in relationship to God. That's what confession is. It is saying, I am a human You are God, and that is the right ordering of things. And often, in fact, our sin comes from us getting that confused or forgetting God's role altogether and just simply going functionally without maybe conscious thought going, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, therefore I'm in charge, I'm in control, I define the world. We spend so much time in our lives trying to be right Trying to be in control, trying to get credit for things that we have no business getting credit for. That's that is the 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 work of our lives. That is the core of sin in our lives. A desire to be in control, a desire to get credit, a desire to be right. Once again, Lewis from Problem of Pain. It says, if the first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well, the second shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad in itself, is our own and enough for us. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well for us. We we have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God in interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Or as a friend of mine said, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. God functions like our backup plan. He's there if we mess up the primary one. If things get out of our control, then at the fringes of that helplessness, then God can enter the picture. But confession, this right response to the pain and the need, us getting out of our control, the right response is that confession to go, no, no, this is the way it should always have been. I should always have been submitting my will to God's. I should always have been going to him for what's right. I should always have been giving him control over my life and recognizing his control. I should always have been in this right order of relationship. That's confession. We see it over and over throughout the scriptures. And that's the second step in this pattern. The third is, and this is the only reason why I can confidently say confess over and over and over. We talk about this every week when we take communion. The only reason we can confess sin is because of grace. Grace is, in, in Lewis's words, the humility of God, which is a remarkable idea. So the sailors confessed God's sovereignty, and so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. God's grace. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, spoke, uh, says the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Grace. Jonah didn't deserve that. Nineveh, when they saw what God did, they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster. He said he would do, and he did not do it. Did that car get all the way up here? Nice work, dude. Nice work. It's like when you're in a movie theater and someone drops a bottle and it just rolls all the way down to the front. <laughs> Lewis, and the problem of pain. He says, I call this a divine humility. He's talking about grace. He goes, I call grace this divine humility because it is a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. A poor thing to come to him as a last resort, to offer up our own when it is no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he's not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. The same humility is shown by all those divine appeals to our fears which trouble high-minded readers of Scripture. It is hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell. Yet even this he accepts. The creature's illusion of self-sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. And by trouble or fear of trouble on earth, by crude fear of the eternal flames, God shatters it, unmindful of his glory's diminution. Diminution. Think about what Lewis is saying there. It is remarkable. Because I know how offended I feel when people come to me as a last resort. Right? When my kids can't figure something out, and they try, 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 and try, and they ask their uncles, and they ask their mom, and they ask the neighbor, and they're asking anybody else. And they finally come to me and go, okay, fine, Dad. And I make them feel it, right? I want them, oh, 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 look who's come crawling back now. Huh? Oh, you couldn't figure that out? You couldn't figure out how to tie your shoes? Even when I offered, you couldn't do it, huh? (laughs) Maybe we should get you Velcro. (laughs) And I get it. He's three. But, you know, like. But that's not God's response. God, That's that's never God's response. He goes, you've tried everything else? Okay. I, I bet it didn't work. There's not even a moment of shame, there's not a moment of guilt, there's not a moment of of sticking it to us. There's just grace, immediate grace. I I, I picture us, you know, in this moment of confession where we just, it dawns on us that we need to confess, we need to turn to God. And it's that that first turn of the shoulder, that very first even the thought that I need to turn and God's there with grace. That it's not a a turn and we have to kind of do this, walk back Charlie Brown style, and he's like, yeah, 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 come all the way down. Once you get here, there will be grace. No, it's just that first inkling of confession, and he's there with grace. God just wants you. He wants you. He wants you to be with him. He knows that the greatest experience of life for you is life with him. That's what he wants for you, for your good and for his glory. And he will do anything that it takes to get your attention so that you can be with him. So there's there's not, you don't have to pay penance to get grace. It's grace. And that's what enables our confession. It's what should empower us. To confess, it's what should take away any hesitation that we have to confess our sin, to confess our rebellion, to confess our our, our attempts to be him. Just knowing that it is grace that awaits us. And then, and then there's change. Step four, to get us back on the path. Says the men feared the Lord exceedingly, the sailors in chapter one, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God, I'll never I'll never not trust you again. And Jonah says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He said, Again, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to the mes- call out to them the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He obeyed God. Nineveh, after hearing the gospel, said, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. The very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The first words recorded out of Jesus' mouth, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. This is what it means to repent and believe. It's the simplest illustration I've ever come up with. Repentance is this. I am walking in this direction. I think this is the way to go. I think this is the life I should pursue. I think this is the way to be. No, it's not. It's this. That's repentance. Simply acknowledging what I was doing wasn't it. This is it. And then believing is walking in the other direction. Mind's blown? Pretty good, huh? It's that simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is just going, nope, that ain't it. That's the path to death. This is the path to life. Now I'm going to walk that path. Now, I, I've told you a bunch of times, I'm, st- I'm in all these rooms now with the comedy stuff, and, and people fundamentally mess up Christianity. It's, it's amazing to me how little people understand Christianity, and this is what they mess up, what we just talked about. This is what the world does not get right about Christianity. The world thinks the story is, Once you do this, then you get grace. That's not the story. That's not the story. The story is, you get grace here, and now we walk with him. That's the story. The message of the gospel is not, get it right, and then God will love you. The message of the gospel is, God loves you, let's get it right. Because he has made us for a certain way. He has made, there, one of my favorite theologians, a guy by the name of Stanley Wass, talks about the grain of the universe. You know how wood has grain? I don't, but I've read it. Wood has a grain, and if you cut with the grain, it's much easier to cut. If you cut against the grain, it's hard. So I've heard. The illustration is that God made the world with a grain to it. And if we follow that grain, we will experience far more joy and peace and love and all of the things God made us for because he made us for a certain way of being. And part of repentance is going, I'm cutting against the grain. I don't want to cut against the grain anymore. I want to, cut, I want to walk with the grain. And empowered by the Spirit, by the grace of God, we can walk with the grain. That's has to be part of this. God wants our best, our highest and purest existence. Suffering isn't that, but it's what God uses sometimes to get us where we need to go. There is need, there is confession, there is grace, there is change, over and 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 over until you die. Because here's what will happen. You experience need. You recognize that this path that you're on has caused pain in your life. You confess. That first moment of confession, there is grace that actually is what allows you to turn around. It is grace that allows you to walk in the right direction. And you do so for about nine minutes until you forget about it and you start walking back in the other direction. And then there is confession and grace and then you start to do it. And then you got up to nine minutes, 15 seconds, and then there's more sin. And it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and round and round until you die. This is the pattern of life. Once in the most ultimate sense that you give your life to Christ, but that doesn't change the pattern. The pattern is always sin, which creates need, which we should respond to with confession, which God always responds to with grace, and then we walk the path. That's it. That's the pattern over and over and over. I mean, the remarkable thing about Jonah is the very last chapter starts with and ends with Jonah needing to do the whole thing over again. Right? In chapter 4, is just a repeat of chapter 1. Chapter 1, God comes to Jonah, says, go to Nineveh. He says, no, there's pain, there's grace, there's salvation. And then we're back and Jonah's mad again and he is going to need to go through pain, confession, grace. Over and over and over. A lifetime. Being a disciple of Jesus is a lifetime of the recognition of our need, responding with confession, receiving grace, changing our path by His grace, and then doing it again over and over and over. Last bit of Lewis. It says, pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You are deaf. I am deaf. We are blind. We are ignorant to the message of God around us that is over and over and over simply saying, that's the path of life. That's the path of life. That's the path of life. Stop walking the path of death. Walk the path of life. So we, we, we experience pain and we go, why God? God goes, because otherwise you die. Pain is protection from the greater evil and destruction of the path we are walking. Sometimes it's God kicking our cane out from under us so that we fall and recognize that that cane was never gonna hold us up in the first place. Sometimes that pain is him going, listen, I'm going to let you do what you want to do, but this is where it's going to end, and I want you to see the natural end of your decisions. Sometimes that that pain is just uh, uh, intended to open our eyes to the fact that there is a better way. There is a through line. There is a truth in the world. And so the moment we go, well, this is unjust, we go, okay, well, what's justice? And how do you know? Sometimes we, God is just opening our eyes to the brokenness of the world around us so that we will call out to him in need. That it is a way for us to recognize our own limits as humans. That those of us who, for whom life is going well and can be lulled into the deception that we are in control, that we are sovereign, that we know the right answers, that we are God. That he allows pain to break up that foolishness before we get hurt too much. And that's grace. That's love in action. And I pray that we would be able to see it as that. Let's pray. Jesus, we are... hesitatingly thankful for the pain in our lives maybe in a moment like this we can recognize what it is but we wish there was another way we go, can't you can't you open my eyes without it being painful why does it have to hurt for me to respond and i think you i think you're thinking the same thing Why does it have to hurt before you will respond? Why do I have to experience loss before I reach out to you to provide? Why do I have to experience poverty in order to remember that riches won't save me or protect me? Lord, you love me too much to just let me be lulled to sleep, lulled to death by my own arrogance, by the lies of the world, by your own provision. I mean, that's the, the depth of my sin is that I look at your good gifts and depend on them, not you, the giver of the gifts. So God, I I thank you for all the moments of pain where you have had to shake me awake so that I can see again. And I, I pray, God, that you would always do that for us. Never leave us to our own devices. Never give up on us. Bring whatever you have to bring into our lives in order for us to see clearly and walk the path of life. Thank you for your divine humility. That in spite of our foolishness, in spite of how fast we run away and cling to vain idols, that the slightest hint of repentance is met with immediate grace. No shame, no guilt. No path to walk down to receive grace. Just immediate welcoming and open arms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as always, we'll transition to a time of response. We do this in a few different ways. We'll sing together, we'll pray together. Um, but we always take communion together each week because we need to be reminded uh, that it is uh, it was at great cost to God to save us, to offer us the grace that he offers, that he bore the weight of sin that he bore the weight of all of those consequences that we so often avoid.